Our passage tonight comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we pray very simply that you would help us to see your Son tonight here in the garden and the rawness of his humanity. And we pray that it would minister deeply to us as your people. We pray, O oh God, that it would, um, it would move us, that once again you would impress upon us your love for us in the death and the suffering of your Son. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, maybe you've read the scene that we've just read before. Um, you should know, though, a famous scene in the life of Jesus, it has a very awkward history in, um, throughout Christianity, both for Christians and for non-Christians. Raymond Brown, in his magisterial work entitled The Death of the Messiah, notes that outsiders to Christianity have long seen this scene as scandalous and ridiculous. Scandalous and ridiculous. Why? Well, from early on, educated Greco-Romans would have been familiar with Plato's description of the death of Socrates, the hero philosopher. You may know this, but Socrates was a man who was executed uh, innocently for his lofty principles, just like Jesus. And how did Socrates face his own death as, as Plato himself describes him in the Phaedra, how did he face his death? Uh, without tears, without any begging, without pleas to be spared, without any show of weakness. You add to that the Stoic ideal that, that passions like sorrow in the face of suffering were not only irrational, but they were sinful. And you have a leader here in the Garden of Gethsemane who is out of control. You know, the early opponents to Christianity said, shouldn't your, shouldn't your hero be serene? 
shouldn't he be resolute? Shouldn't he be fearless in the face of death? For those who are actually raised inside the Jewish tradition, for whom Socrates was not the ideal, they had the accounts of the Jewish martyrs. Um, Just a century before uh, Jesus came, the Maccabean martyrs. Those martyrs forged their own heroic expectations. And so 2 Maccabees, an apocryphal work, tells us this. These martyrs were righteous people who died violent deaths at the hands of unjust authorities, just like Jesus. And they faced their fate with the resolve, and I quote, to give a noble example of how to die a good death, willingly and generously. That is how a hero dies. Willingly and generously. Not a man who faces his fate reluctantly and overcome with grief. And then for the church, for Christians themselves, the claim that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, that he is the second person of the Trinity incarnate, That has been a difficult claim to square with the vulnerability and the weakness of Jesus in this scene. Celsus, an early opponent of Origen, who was a church father, put it like this. How is it that one who is divine can mourn and lament and pray to escape the fear of death? How can he be deserted and delivered up by those who were his friends? Why in the world was he caught hiding? And if he foresaw such things would happen to him, why did he not avoid them altogether? Origen answers, the, uh, the, or he responds to, to Celsus, and you can just feel kind of the embarrassment and the tension in his explanation. He, he says this, that Jesus only began to be sorrowful and troubled. He only began to be sorrowful and troubled, but You know, when he actually faced it, when it came down to it, he was able to pull himself together. Others argued in the early church that Jesus was not sorrowful at all for what he would face, but for what the world and for what you and I and all of his disciples would face without him. And Jerome, Jerome said that it was over Judas's own betrayal and the subsequent falling away of the other apostles that Jesus laments, laments so tragically here in this scene. Nothing to do with his own fate. Nothing to do with himself. So I just want you to see what's going on here (laughs) as we approach the scene, as we approach Gethsemane. It has been difficult for the world and even for the church to look at Jesus on this night in this garden, overwhelmed, vulnerable, asking for a way out, and to call him a hero, much less to look at him and to worship him as God. It is, in fact, that difficulty, it's one of the main reasons that many scholars believe the story to be true. The fact that it's recorded in the first place, even though it was an embarrassment and a scandal, Harold Brown calls this the criteria of embarrassment, the criteria of embarrassment. In other words, why not tone down or even purge a scene like this from the records altogether unless the scene was, in fact, an authentic account? 
and unless the earliest witnesses believe that this scene is critical for you to understand the heroism of Jesus. And so my goal for us tonight is simple. It is this. I want you to see why you need the Jesus of the garden. Why, where you sit tonight, you need the Jesus of Gethsemane through his own tears. Why is this scene critical for us to have a relationship with God? Why is it critical? The first thing I want you to see is this. What we learned in the garden is that we serve a God who really knows us. We serve and we are under a God who truly knows us. That is this, our creator, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who was not made, the ruler of the entire universe. He knows you truly where you sit tonight in your own skin. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever suffered betrayal at the hands of someone that you loved? Have you ever been let down by friends in the moment that you needed them the most? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever prayed and felt like no one was listening on the other end? Have you ever faced a situation in which you deeply wanted a way out and yet none was offered to you? Have you ever been confused? Have you ever suffered the torment and the agony of depression? If your answer is yes, according to this passage, so has Jesus. And thus, so has God. If you have the verses before you, I want you to look with me specifically at verses 37 and 38 for a moment. I'm going to read them again for us. Matthew records the story this way. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, now don't don't miss that. That's a remarkable part, that Jesus was willing as a leader to be vulnerable before his friends. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. The text is actually awkward in the Greek. It literally translates this way, grief encircled my psyche unto death. And the picture, the complaint is a picture of a soul that is at war. It's a soul that is besieged on all sides, so it's completely surrounded. There's no way out. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no sun breaking through the, cr- the clouds. It is the picture of soul-crushing sadness. Soul-crushing sadness. And I need to be honest with you where I stand tonight from the pulpit. I'm not sure personally I know what this feels like but I know that some of you do. Some of you know exactly how this feels. Nicholas Walterstorff uh, writes a book on suffering. It's one of the most helpful books I've ever read personally. It's called Lament for a Son. And that Walterstorff is a philosopher by profession. He writes the book. The book is is a journey. It's a journal of sorts through his own passage of grief. After having lost his own son in a tragic mountain climbing accident, To those who would come alongside him and help him in his sadness and in his grief, he writes this. But please, whatever you do, don't say it's really not so bad. 
Because it is. Death is awful. It is demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not so bad, then you do not sit with me in my grief, but you place yourself at a distance from me, and over there you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear that you are with me in my desperation. He says, to comfort me, you have to come close. You have to come and sit beside me on my morning bench. Sit beside me and share my pain. Friends, that is exactly what God himself has done. He has come in the flesh not to explain your suffering, but to share it. To sit beside us on our morning bench. So that we can say now that God has actually seen our world through his own tears. And as Walter Storff himself suggests, perhaps he has seen things through tears that dry eyes could never see. Maybe you're thinking to yourself tonight, well, like me, I've never experienced anything like that. I've never felt crushed or encircled or overcome. How can you say then that God knows me? How can, how can you say that he understands me? Well, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. You know, if I can run three miles, doesn't it stand to reason that I can also run two? And if God can meet us here, if God can meet you here in this kind of suffering, in the place where we feel most cut off and alienated and abandoned and misunderstood and alone, if God can meet you here and sit with you here on this morning bench at the bottom, then doesn't it stand to reason that he can sit with you anywhere? in the mundane, in the joy, in your ecstasy as well. C.S. Lewis once wrote that all friendship, all friendship begins basically the same way. It's with a discovery that two people realize that they have a treasure or a burden that they share together, that they're no longer unique, they're not alone. So Lewis writes, the typical expression of the beginning of a friendship is something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. What the Garden of Gethsemane teaches us is that God is able to say to you that you are not the only one. That Jesus knows you truly. He has come close he has sat beside you. He has cried your tears. And now as a result, a deep friendship, a deep intimacy with God is available to you. That's one reason that Jesus is our hero. It's one reason that we need this Jesus to be our hero. He is able to know us in our weakness. Here's the second. Not only does Jesus know us truly, but more importantly on this night, Jesus is the one who represents us faithfully. He represents us faithfully. So the writer of Hebrews says this, of all of Jesus' earthly pains and sorrows, he writes this, Hebrews 2.17, he explains it this way. Therefore Jesus had to be made like us in every way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. That is the qualification for Jesus to be our high priest is that he actually had to be 
may like us in every way, in the rawness of who we are, in the rawness of our own humanity, in order to serve us is our high priest. Now, what in the world is a high priest? <laughs> I mean, we don't, that, that, we don't use that language often, would we agree, right? It sounds archaic, perhaps, from a different tradition altogether. But understanding the priestly ministry of Jesus is fundamental to understanding who he is because all of the New Testament writers draw on that imagery frequently. What is a high priest? In the Old Testament, the central act of Jewish worship took place on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, where on that day an offering was made by one man. He was the high priest. On that day, the high priest stood before all the people as their mediator. He was their representative. And on that day, the high priest was like them in every way. He was bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh. And all that he did on that day, the high priest did on their behalf. First, the high priest uh, symbolically cleansed himself, took a bath. It's a good start. Then he adorned himself with special clothes. And part of his special garb was that he wore a breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones, visible to all, 12 jewels, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. That is all the people. And Exodus 28 explains it like this, that he wore those jewels because the judgment of the people were supposed to be on his heart. The priests wore the breastplate and the jewels because the weight of the sins of the people were supposed to be on his heart. And with the weight of the sins of the people on his heart, clothed in the breastplate, jeweled, he went and he, um, he took an animal. And the high priest laid his hands on that animal and confessed his own sins, and then he confessed there the sins of the people. And then he offered a sacrifice as a symbol of God's judgment for the people's sins. And before all the people, one animal died right there, right in front of them. And then one animal, another lamb, was let go to die outside of the camp. Because that is where defilement belonged. In exile. In darkness. Next, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would go into the holy place, the most holy place, It was called the Holy of Holies, believed to be the place where the very presence of God would dwell on earth. And there only once a year, as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he would go there and he would vicariously intercede for all the people on his behalf. He would say, God have mercy. Lord have mercy. On account of this blood, have mercy. And the people then must have wondered, as we do now, how the blood of animals could possibly atone for wickedness. Now, this is precisely the imagery that the New Testament writers are drawing on to show us that all of these Old Testament high priests were merely foreshadowing the final high priest who was to come. That is Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus tonight... Just as Jesus then is able to stand in solidarity with us because he was made like us in every way. He is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And friends, it was on this night in Gethsemane in this garden that Jesus himself begins to taste 
what being our high priest, what representing us before God will actually cost him. You'll notice the central verse really in all of his pleas and all of his desires and all of his supplication to God is verse 39. Verse 39 goes like this. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If it is possible, let the cup pass from me. Well, what in the world is the cup? What is the cup that Jesus asks to be removed from him? In the Old Testament, the cup was an often used symbol for the judgment of God against human sin. It was a symbol for the wrath of God poured out against human rebellion and wickedness. So, for example, in Psalm 75, we read this. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. It is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from the cup. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain the cup down to the dregs. What is the psalmist saying? Friends, have you ever wanted justice? You ever longed for justice? The psalmist is promising you that justice will come, and it will come from God. God's wrath is stored up against wickedness. And any who have played a part in wickedness must drink their portion. They must drink their portion. They must drink the judgment that they have shared until the cup itself is drained to the dregs. Do you know what the dregs were? This is kind of gross. You know what the dregs were? The dregs were the sediments at the very bottom of a drink, the very end. It was particles and backwash. The worst part, the most undesirable. So we still use that word. We'll say the dregs of society. What do we mean? The, the least desirable. The part no one wants. The point that the psalmist is making is that evil will be judged fully. The cup will be drained to the, dr to the dregs. No rebellion. No injustice. No evil will go unaccounted for. And when Jesus sees this cup presented to him on this night, it is foaming with divine wrath that is well mixed. And your high priest and my high priest, who was made like us in every way, says this, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. I will drink the cup stored up for sinners. And on this night carried to the cross, Jesus goes to drain your judgment to the dregs. So that where you sit tonight, two things are true for you if you are in Christ. Number one, there is no shame in your life, no shame in your life, that Jesus was not willing to drink on your behalf. There is no betrayal, no rebellion, no evil, no shame, even the worst part, the dregs, he was willing to drain on your behalf. And number two, friends, there is no judgment left for you to drink. The cup is drained. All the way at the cross where Jesus himself becomes the lamb that dies outside the camp, 
There is nothing left for you. Tonight where you sit, you are free. You are free. Your guilt has been atoned for. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care how you feel subjectively, objectively. There is now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. The cup has been drained all the way. With you on his heart this night, adorned in our flesh, bathed in his righteousness, Jesus agrees not only to be your priest, but also your sacrifice. Not only to know you truly, but to represent you faithfully before God. And to what end? To what end? Uh, what's, the, um, what's the end game here? Well, the end game actually occurs in the passage before that where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples. And he offers his disciples what? What does he offer them there? Do you remember the story? He offers them there a new cup, right? It is a new cup to come in the place of the old cup, Right? So if you know this, the, the Passover, Paul explained it a little bit, the Passover was the feast commemorating God's gift of new life for his people when, by the blood of a lamb slain, God delivered his people from their bondage and they got to start all over again. The new life was given to them, a new life was open to them. And so it's no wonder on this night when Jesus says, give me the cup, and he drains the old cup. And in that same moment, he offers to you a new cup, the cup of a whole new life forged by his love and his sacrifice. One Christian writer puts it like this. Jesus has taken the tears of the world and made them his own. <laughs> we see that in Gethsemane. But Jesus has also taken the joy of the world and he's given it a whole new birth. And we see that here tonight at this table. Maybe you've been here before with us on Thursday night. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Our worship tonight leads here. All of our journey, where we begin in the back, all that we've done so far, it all leads to this cup on this night, to a new cup. You will raise a new cup tonight. And so before you raise the cup, I just want you to know what you're doing, okay? Just for a moment. Here's what you're doing when you raise this cup tonight. You are uniting yourself with a hero who is called a scandal. You are, you, you are aligning yourself with a hero who is a scandal, no matter the cost to you. And you are doing so in a world that is opposed to him and opposed to his ways. Nonetheless, when you raise the cup tonight, you are submitting yourself to his rule and to his authority, no matter what it may cost you. Even though you may suffer, much like his disciples did. You are bowing the knee to him. More importantly, when you raise the cup tonight, I want you to know what Jesus is doing. You see, on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus raised the cup himself and said, this is my blood. This is the cup of new life. Drink it. Drink my blood. What a strange thing to say. What in the world does that mean? Drink it. Take and drink my blood given for all of you. What does that mean? What did it mean then and what does it mean now? Well, it means tonight as you raise the cup, this is true. Jesus is really filling you with himself. 
Okay, imagine that for a moment. I know that you may have heard that before, but imagine that when you taste what you're about to taste, Jesus is truly filling you with himself. That's what blood is. Blood is the life. Jesus is giving you all of his life. And he is not just saying to you, but he is actually doing it. He is present with you tonight. And he will be present with you tomorrow. In all of your journeys, in all of your fatigues, in your joy, and in your sorrow, he is as present with you now and as present with us tonight as ever he was with his disciples when he was in the flesh. Do you see where his disciples are? Though the flesh is willing, and the, but the, the, what is it? Though the spirit is willing, and the flesh is weak. Have you ever felt that before? The spirit is willing, oh God, but the flesh is weak. Though his, um, though the most loyal ones, the three that he took with him, though they fall asleep, how many times? Three times, right? They cannot stay awake. Though that be you tonight, in your apathy, in your sleepiness toward God, Jesus is saying, "I am with you." And better yet, I am in you. Not only to take your tears and to make them my own, but to take your joy and expand it, expand it, giving you a whole new birth. We lift the cup together tonight. Friends, it is the cup of God's favor. That's the only cup we'll ever drink. The cup of God's favor given to sinners through the very tears of his son. It is his life for us and his life in us, to heal us all the way through. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a suffering servant, for a hero who can know us, who has known us, but more importantly, who has been before your face on our stead, and who has swallowed our judgment, our condemnation to the very dregs. Oh, Oh, Lord, we do pray tonight that in the power of your spirit that we would sense Jesus is with us, not just corporately as he is, but also personally. Would you give us more of his life, more of his joy, more of the freedom that comes from knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to him. Thank you for your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.